over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Saul is dead. David laments. Second Samuel, a remarkable book. David will be anointed king in Judah and then king in Israel. His lifespan as a king is 40 and one-half years. It's one of the interesting timestamps we have in the Bible, precisely seven and a half years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. The timeline on the bigger picture is almost the halfway point between Abraham and Jesus, which is interesting to think about. So we have this new king, this first king, this good king, the goat, I like that, we've got the goat. Maybe we should have a second goat in front of it, but we have the good king finally. Saul is off grid by now. But as with any power center, any monarchy, any establishment, there are always tensions along the way. And David's kingdom, of course, is going to be marred by his own devastating sins. And to try to put our arms around this book is like any book of this length. It's challenging. Uh, Thomas Nelson and Ken Boa and Wilkerson come up with almost the exact outline, and I'm just showing you this. I don't particularly think it's the best or the only. It's just one, and it's a thumbnail, and it's alliterated, so it's fairly easy to remember David's triumphs, David's transgressions, and David's troubles. It's a little bit simplistic, but it is helpful. In these early chapters, in chapter 10, the tension is right at the beginning. Abner is an enemy and an irritation all of David's life. And he is uh, going to make one of Saul's sons king. So we don't have a divided kingdom yet, technically, but we're starting out tripping up because David's been anointed, but he's not yet taken ownership, let's say, of the monarchy. So Abner is one of Saul's sons, and his name is Ishbosheth. Abner puts Ishbosheth as king in Israel. Now, the divided kingdom, remember, I, the way I remember this is the alphabet, the letter I comes before J, right? So Israel is in the north and Judah is in the south of this small piece of property about the size of, of Connecticut or New Hampshire. That's where this kingdom lies. Um, it's going to precipitate into civil war early on in his kingdom. But what these first 10 chapters show is the strength of the house of David compared and contrast with the failures of the house of Saul. Couldn't be more obvious as you compare and contrast these things. Um, there's some hard stuff in these first chapters. There's some justice killings, we might call them, uh, along the side. And um, the diplomacy that David does as a young king is remarkable in these first four, five, six chapters. It could, you couldn't have a better playbook for how to follow a flawed king or how to follow a flawed power center. Well, the success is, is great and striking, and one of the first things he does is it has to do with Saul and Jonathan's bodies and a little remnant. And that story in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel tells us about David's respect for Saul. You know, in, in Bible circles, maybe you had a Bible study, and they go, Saul really saved. I mean, Saul was an evil king. God sent a, a wicked spirit to, to uh, punish, an evil spirit to punish him. How in the world could Saul be saved? 
And, you know, there's no chapter and verse definitively, but the fact that God chose him and anointed him, I think he was, he was saved. Was he flawed and sinful? Absolutely. Was he a mess? Absolutely. But he was also a king. And we can't just dismissively say, well, God you know, did, didn't honor him that way. David exemplifies that when half of Israel wanted to wipe the memory of Saul off the map. They go, no, this was God's anointed. And we had that, that great uh, cadence. We'll, we might look at it if we have time. Uh, the, the, the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. One of the first psalms we have recorded of David is in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, of course, is the pivotal, and that's the failure, and this we know the story too well. It starts with the adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah the Hittite, and then the hubris of the king, the hubris, he takes his power too far, and it dismantles his kingdom, and he'll, lure, he'll lose a, a massive amount of power, a massive amount of his people. People will die because of it, and it will be a, a downward spiral for the next part of his kingdom. Uh, chapters 12 to 24, uh, 12 is perhaps one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the story, but it's also a horrible time. And when Nathan goes and confronts David, and we'll look at that in a few minutes, but it's a, an interesting picture. Let's talk about Nathan for just a minute. Here's a prophet. It's one thing to be called a prophet of God, which was a, a job nobody wanted. The prophets were universally reluctant a couple of exceptions where Isaiah says, you know, send me, I'll go. But for the most part, you know, I don't want to do this from Moses on. I don't want somebody else. You know, it's always this backpilling. No one wants to be a prophet. It's like being a dean. If you're a faculty member, everybody you get along with. If you're a department chair, eh, you're a dean, all your friends are now your enemies. They can't stand you because you have to make decisions. And if you're a prophet, you get to go tell people what God said, and it's not a popular thing to do. Now, you're the prophet to the king. For you Bible study nerds, Nathan is a great character study. There's not a lot on him, so it's not a long study. But if you look carefully at what God does with this man, Nathan, it is nothing short of remarkable. Um, to jump to the end, I remember studying Second uh, Samuel years ago, and when I read chapter 12 and where Nathan confronts David, um, let, me, let me just read, I'll give too much of the backstory, I don't want to get off in the weeds, but this is such a rich passage in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Um, Nathan has gone to him with the story about the lamb, remember? And, you know, th this rich man had all these lambs, and he kills his neighbor's little pet lamb and eats it. Remember that story? And David, this, this is a yelling and screaming scene in the kingdom, I'm convinced. I think it was Nathan and David are yelling at each other. And when David finally gets the message that God has sent Nathan to tell him this, in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. So the child that was born to you shall surely die. And then we read this little cryptic, so Nathan went to his house. And he's almost off grid after that. You imagine what the blow would have been like to go into the king's court, to confront the king, to have a yelling match with the king, the most powerful person on the planet, literally at the time. To call him a sinner, to call him a murderer, an adulterer. And after that, to go home. I mean, talk about adrenaline dump. 
Talk about depressed. Talk about it's over. I have just single-handedly decimated the kingdom by delivering this news to the king. Um, I think Nathan was wiped out, and I think the only place he had was to go home. It's fascinating. We hear very little about him. He's referenced, but he doesn't speak the rest of the story. That was his job in life, to confront the king and bring him down. And off stage right he goes. One little caveat, and some of you Bible study folks uh, will know it. Um, the name Jedediah, who's that referred to, by the way? Solomon, bingo. I'm impressed. Only occurs one time in the scripture. We call it a hapax legomena. It only occurs one time in the book, one time in the Bible. It's a hapax, the word Jedediah. And that was Nathan's name that God gave him to go call Solomon, the son born after the first son dies of Bathsheba and David. And the boy that comes along after Solomon, the next king, this, it almost, it's a diminutive name like, I really love this one. The King's English, beloved, kind of falls unless you're a K. Arthur fan. It just doesn't work for most of us. Beloved, you know, it's not one that rolls off your tongue, right? But if you're accustomed to it, but it's a diminutive term. I love this one. I love this one. Jedediah. Great name for a kid, by the way. Well, most of you know that Psalm 51 will be, will be penned out of David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite and the, those consequent stories of that. Um, if you study Psalm 51, and this has a timestamp on it, by the way. In fact, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 51 for just a moment. I'll give you a, a little free Bible study methodology hint. And some of you know this already, and some of you don't. In your Bible, under Psalm 51, it'll have a title. Mine, mine says, for example, a contrite sinner's prayer for pardon. And then it has what we call a superscription. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's called a superscription. And there's been great debate through all of uh, Hebrew history. Are, are these added by editors or are they the very word of God? When we have what I call a timestamp like this, this is Yahtzee. Okay, I know when this took place. A lot of the psalms don't have timestamps on them. And we, we kind of are contrived to fit them. I think God, number one, I think the superscriptions are scripture. I think they are trustworthy. Number two, I think God wanted us not to miss this. He didn't want to leave any doubt that this Psalm 51 was connected to his immorality and murderous activity. And if you read Psalm 51, it's one of these passages that it's like so many passages. We, we go, oh, it's a great psalm, but he can't offer sacrifice. Otherwise, he would do it. Uh, verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgression my sin is ever before me against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge and he talks about you know I was born in sin which is depravity not that his mother and father were sinful I was born in, in sin and sin my mother conceived me from the beginning you desire truth in the innermost being on and on it goes, purify me with hyssop, wash me, I'll be water and snow. He can't offer a sacrifice, why? Why couldn't David go offer a sacrifice of what he'd done? There's no provision in the law. For adultery and murder, you know what the provision in the law was? Kill him. 
That's why Psalm 51 is so remarkable, and that's why you should study it. Because there, our sins really have no sacrifice that we humanly can do to compensate for what we've done wrong. Those of us who parent, you have that one child with the guilty conscience. You get one like that. You don't get a bunch. You get one like that. They have a real sensitive conscience, and they feel bad when they lie or when they do something wrong to mom or daddy. Some of you had that child. We had one like that. And they come up and they say, oh, I'm sorry I did this. And it wears them out. What are they trying to do? I want to do anything to make that relationship right. I think that's sewn in the fabric of every man and woman. That when you're caught, when you sinned, when you've done wrong, I'll walk across glass to get rid of this sin. And that's why Psalm 51 is such a powerful reminder. There's no sacrifice you can offer that's sufficient for this sin. But God was gracious. And God was merciful, and God was loving, and he made a way. And, of course, that becomes the messianic sacrifice. Well, another insight or kind of theme that we want to look at is to see the way the two kingdoms, the house of Saul and the house of David, are, are depicted. And I came across this years ago quite by accident. And when you read the Bible, one of the most the basic things you're doing is observation. You're reading, looking for repetitions, for, for themes, for recurring ideas. And uh, when I was reading Second Samuel this week, reading it again and again and again, you're looking for these repetitions. I call them yellow flags in the margin, things that pop out at you. There's an interesting word in the English translation rendered inquired. And I looked through about a dozen English Bibles, and only one used the word ask. So it's not one that you're going to go, I can't see that in my translation. By the way, I get emails every two weeks about what Bible version do you use? I use the New American Standard Bible. It's, it's a good rendering. So anyway, but the word inquired, is, it's all English Bibles tend to use it. Let me give you a survey of this word inquired and what it means and how it's used. It shows up 14 times in the first and second Samuel books, which you may recall last week I mentioned it was probably one book, but because of handling it physically, they took it apart and turned it into two Torah scrolls. And that would be true of all the Chronicles and Kings as well. So this word inquired pops up 14 times. As an example, Saul inquired of the Lord twice. David inquired of the Lord seven times. So we see right away uh, this, the motivation of a king when he goes to God and asks a question. Twice for Saul, seven times for David. Um, it gives us insight when, and this is something if you want to dig deeper on this, you look at the context of those, of those references I've got. What's going on that motivates the king to say, I need God's help on this one? I need to call in a favor. Okay, Lord, what do I do? More times than not, they're military. Do I go fight the Philistines? Do I go up against them? Will I have victory? That's a pretty good prayer to ask God specifically. Okay, Lord, uh, do we take men into battle and lose lives over this proposition because of this betrayal, because of this other tribe, because of this people group? And so you inquire of the Lord. Now, the the actual inquiry was probably done with the Urim and the Thummim, or the Urim and the Thurim, depending on what part of the country you live. Um, and their devices, we don't know what they are. We have no idea what they are. Um, it, it seems they yielded a yes-no response, but we just don't know. And they were kept in the ephod pocket of the high priest. And so he would call the priest, and he would come, and sometimes the prophet would be involved. We don't know for sure, but it's not like David goes and prays for days and says, what do we do? 
some of this is cloaked in history. We don't know exactly what it was, but the inquiry is recorded <clears throat> enough times to tell us there was a way for the king to ask for God's favor. And sometimes God would say, no, don't do that. I want you to do this. Um, so let me show you some of these. You can just listen and you'll hear the, the cadence of this phrase, inquire to the Lord. This is 2 Samuel 2, verse 1. It came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. So David said, where shall I go up? And the Lord said, to Hebron. In 2 Samuel 5, 19, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? The Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And this one's very interesting in verse 23 of the same chapter, 5. Then David inquired of the Lord. He said, you shall not go up directly, but you will circle around them behind them and come at them from the front uh, in front of the balsam trees. So there's a yes-no equation here. There's information perhaps the prophet is getting. But before David goes to battle, he inquires of God. Now, I don't want to oversimplify the backstory of this, but the complexity of what's going on with David's kingdom, the establishment of it, the epic failure begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we read this, and it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. That David uh, sent Joab, his servants, with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the, uh, excuse me, let me just read it instead of trying to paraphrase it. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon, besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Continues. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired. Ding, 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 same word. He inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Whoever he asks is trying to run interference. King, you got no business doing this. So the inquiries go from, do I go to war? Do I go up against the Philistines? What do I do here? To, and it's chilling as you see the progression. The success vector is like this for this man. And then he inquires about a woman. The place he inquires is also chilling. In the battle line, you inquire about God, how to continue this battle. Now he's on the house that God let him build. I wish you could all be in Israel and we could show you the city of David and you could peel away all the Arab neighborhoods and understand this was a mountainous region. We'd call it hill country by our terminology. Not even the Tennessee hills have too much foliage on them. Hit the Austin hill country, these rolling hills with very little vegetation on them. And this is where Abraham offers Isaac. This is where David comes up. We're going to look at this moment. He owns the city of David. It's like a V, like, a, like an ice cream cone. We're down here looking north, and he's got this, what we would call high point vista now at his home. We know where his home is. We go there, and you envision stripping away from the mountainside these Arab houses, and there were some kind of modest complexes where Bathsheba lived. Uriah was a warrior. And so the centurions and the different, different troop, uh, uh, troop allotments that they had to manage, and more than likely he was like a lieutenant. And so he comes home. He lives, you know, we would say uh, in Antioch compared to Williams County. But in that small compressed area, you could see these homes. 
So he's a, he's a lowly soldier, and his wife is taking a bath on the roof, and that's when David sees her. He inquired about war, and now he inquires about a woman. Of course, you know the story. The child is going to die, and 2 Samuel 12, 16, David therefore inquired of the child. He fasted and prayed and went and lay all night in the ground. So we go from inquiring about going to battle to inquiring about a woman to inquiring to God about a boy that's going to die. And then the final time we want to look at it is in 2 Samuel 16, 23. The advice of Ahipothel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of God. So was all the advice of Ahipothel regarded by both David and Absalom. And you can't miss the digression. Inquiring of God to inquiring about a woman to inquiring about whether the boy's going to live. And then the last one we get is this man Ahipothel. And so we need to take a little bit of a sidebar and talk about Ahipothel. Absalom is one of the many sons of David. He's a favored son. Have you all seen the movie Legends of the Fall? Um, I'm not recommending a movie. It's one of my favorite films on the planet. Cindy hates it. She hates it. Um, my daughter Jessie loves it because Brad Pitt's in it. So say no more. But um, it is a remarkable film. And I don't know. I've, I've studied a little bit of the writing and whatnot. And I'm not, I'm not endorsing you to watch it. You'll probably go, he, he's a, he watches that movie. How can he be a Christian? So don't watch the movie. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but the storyline in there is a, it's a Joshua. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a Esau uh, a Jacob and Esau story. It's a prodigal story. I and mean, there's so many things folded in that story. And Absalom is Tristan. Long hair, good looking, everybody loves him. He goes to the gate of the city and basically he says, if I were king, I wouldn't be dilatory about your needs. I would help you. That king up there, he ain't doing his job. So Absalom causes this conspiracy. And he's got this guy named Ahipothel with him. Now, Ahipothel was a war counselor. And he's with David when David's inquiring of the Lord, do I go up and take on the Philistines? It'd be like the Secretary of Defense, the four-star general. This is the guy who's going to lead this effort. That's Ahipothel. The epitaph on Ahipothel in chapter 1623 it was as if one inquired of the word of God. That's pretty high cotton. If you're going to go talk to Ahipothel, this is like God answering your question. Make sense? So this is his war counselor. He leaves David and he goes and helps Absalom try to throw off the kingdom from David. Why in the world would Ahipothel leave David? And that's where the plot thickens. Um, you know the phrase talionic justice? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Wound for wound, that's called talionic justice, or lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So if something bad happens to you, you do something bad to some person. Now, what Ahipothel is going to propose is what I call twisted talionic justice. He's, he's now he's, he's in Absalom's camp. They're going to overthrow the kingdom. They're going to go into the kingdom, and let's just say Absalom has plan A, and he, Ahipothel says, no, don't do plan A. I got plan B for you. You're going to take your father's wives and concubines he left behind. You're going to take them on the roof of his house, and you're going to rape them in front of all Israel to make yourself odious. Who's on whose roof doing what? David's on his roof inquiring about a woman. 
named Bathsheba. Which, by the way, some call that a rape. I do not. There's no, no recounting of a struggle, and she willingly marries him and has children with him. So I don't think it was a rape. There was, there was, she could have hit herself. She didn't have to bathe out in the open if she knew the king was looking down the back. They're both complicit. They're both wrong. Okay? So why is this important? You've got to do some homework. Who is Bathsheba in relationship to Ahithophel? It's his granddaughter. David the king took his granddaughter, Ahithophel's granddaughter, and had an affair with her and brought her into his kingdom and murdered his son-in-law, grandson-in-law. Now, if you're a four-star general and you're a righteous guy and there's right and wrong, how do you think a military man would look at that? I'm going to wait my opportunity to make this right. And he had the power to do it. Well, you inquire of the Lord and ask him for what? This is a real easy lesson. <laughs> what do you ask God for? What do you inquire of him? Um, I, one of the reasons that we have tried to get this in your hands, this little handbook to prayer, it's not, it's not some Puritan prayer book or, you know, strength and glory, which are all helpful tools. This is scripture organized in a paint-by-numbers approach to pray. And um, I, I think when you and I ask the same thing of God, the same things over and over and over again, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad or ashamed. Uh, it, and I, I don't like it, even like the words, I have a good prayer life or a bad prayer life or a weak prayer life. I wish I had a strong prayer life. I wish you could just erase that nomenclature out of your mind and, and stop worrying about that. The way you and I learn to pray is to read the prayers of Scripture and see how men and women petitioned God, how they lamented, how they praised, how they had joy, how they had fear, how they had trepidation, how they suffered and endured loss. And that's why I love this little booklet, because it's paint by numbers. It's scripture and some bullets about, pray, pray about this, pray about that. And it helps my uh, sort of slow mind to learn that's what prayer can be like. Um, I, I don't think, and I know some of you are fabulous at prayer, and I, I, I probably get in trouble saying this, but I think Women who are widowed and older are some of the best people on the planet to know how to pray. It's been my experience. And they're the ones that pray for me in otherworldly ways. And I'm just astonished. And that tells me a lot about what it takes in life before you start to pray. It also it seems to be corollary that people that have been through a lot of trouble are better at prayer. Not, not, not one-to-one, but people that have endured and learned through trouble learn to lean on God more than those. For me, and I don't, I'm not saying this is universal, prayer boils down to one thing, independence or dependence. Because I think I can kind of handle things and make it happen and work it out. And you know, I got friends and resources and I can call a favor and I can get her done. And I can find a surgeon and da 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 And as long as I'm self-dependent, I'm not God-dependent. That doesn't mean I sit in a boat while it's sinking and say nothing. But it does mean that God's given you a mind. And prayer to me is a relationship. That's the best word to use. Some people pray better than others. Some people use King James English when they pray. Great. Great. Some of us pray really simple prayers. Some of us are wrenched when a child prays. I go, wow, that's like the perfect prayer that that little kid just said. Why don't I pray that way? 
I'm just trying to encourage you. Here were two kings who inquired of God big things and bad things. What are you inquiring of the Lord? It's just a simple question. And expand it. Uh, I like to ask God to do things that I know that could never come about apart from his intervention. So when I pray for my kids, there, there are things beyond human resources that are needed. Some of your kids are the same way. Some of your friends are the same way. Marriages. If God doesn't work here, it ain't going to work. And that's the prayer I think he likes to hear. I didn't say answer. That's the prayer he likes to hear. And that's really what it is, his relationship with him. Well, the last thing I want you to look at is what I think really is the, the key of the book, not so much the failure of Bathsheba, uh, sin, sin with Bathsheba and the child's death and the murder of Uriah the Hittite and the numbering census toward the end of the book, all those things David got in hot water for. But I want you to look at 2 Samuel 7 because to me this is really the key of the book. Um, and again, I'm not saying that bulldogmatically, just in my study, I think this is the most important chapter and the most important purpose. I'm going to read quite a bit of it so you can follow along, and then we have some, we'll show you on the screen. Give you the backdrop, what's happening here. The ark has been misplaced. It has not been in Jerusalem, and David, one of the first things he does in this, these early chapters, he goes and retrieves the ark, and there's some comedy and tragedy in that story of how he got the ark back and people dying and people being blessed. It's an interesting story. But the ark is finally brought into Jerusalem. Think about this. From the day they were to go to the promised land, they've gone through the wilderness wandering. They were prior to that. They're in, in, the, in Egypt and in slavery. I mean, all their life they've been trying to get into this promised land. And they finally get in there and they finally got the good king. And what's the good king do? We need the ark. The ark belongs here in Israel and Jerusalem. Not, not with you know, the Philistines or somebody else. It involved, it, it, it's, our, it's our representation of God's covenant with, with Moses. We need to get the ark. So he brings it. And, of course, this is a party. This is a celebration. This is a Macy's Day parade, a Super Bowl uh, champion on steroids times 10 religious holiday that they're going to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And David is dancing. And there's, you know, we think of a few people with, you know, like hippie, uh, clothes, you know, with tambourines and bell-bottom pants, you know, with braids in their hair and whatnot. Think of a full ancient orchestra. Think of an outdoor tea pack, uh, a concert that is, you know, global, a YouTube setup where you've got thousands of musicians and people that are celebrating the ark of God is coming back and David is dancing. And his wife is real happy about that, right? Remember? Michael despises him. You made a fool of yourself, basically, is what she said. And I, I, I don't love what happens to her, but I love what God does to her, just saying, you're off grid, woman. And David, was I not to be glad and praise God for what he did? And you don't hear from her. She's relegated to the edge. So now David wants to say, he brings the, he brings the ark in. We need a temple. We've been hauling around this, this portable tabernacle complex for all these years. We need a building for God. That's a really good kingly vision, right? And you, got, you have to love this chapter. 2 Samuel 7, now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. The king said to Nathan, back to Nathan the prophet, our friend, now, see, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, 
but the ark of God dwells in tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought, you, I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Whenever I've gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why do have you not built me a house of cedar? Okay, you got a nice house, David. Have, have I ever complained or commanded that you build me a place to park the ark? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep. Pause. What are you walking in when you're following sheep? Don't miss it. He didn't say, I took you from leading sheep or shepherding sheep. I took you from following sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. There couldn't be a more, uh, a, a bigger graduation scale. This isn't a university uh, to a job or a full ride scholarship. This is a guy walking in sheep dung. I took you from there to be over my people, Israel. There, there was no more graduation ceremony on the planet. Remember, he's the king of the most powerful people group in the world at this time. Don't forget this, even though it's a small piece of property. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Remember we talked about cut off with Saul being the kingdom cut off from him and the robe and the hem, that metaphor, that, that image keeps following the storyline before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I also will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, in the margin of my Bible, I've written the word in quotes, dynasty. Dynasty. He's not talking about a physical, okay, you get to build a $350 square foot home. Most of us read that and go, oh, David got to build a house. Well, yes, he built a house, but that wasn't the end game. I'm going to build a dynasty with you, David. Verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, a euphemism for when you die, I will raise up. So see the metaphor. You're gonna, I'm going to lay you down. I'm going to raise up someone else, your descendants after you, who will come forth from you. So that will be a part of the Davidic lineage. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's the principal person he's talking about? Solomon. You're going to have a son named Solomon, and he's going to build the temple complex. But there's much more here than just Solomon. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my chesed, my loving kindness, shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 
forever. This is the messianic eternal throne. This is the Davidic covenant. This is, in my two-cent opinion, the most important passage in 2 Samuel. God is saying, I'm going to set up a dynasty with you, David, that's going to be more important, quote-unquote, than the temple complex that your son's going to build later on. Because it's this everlasting covenant through the lineage of David that one will come who will be called Jesus Christ, Messiah, King of the Jews, the one for whom we wait. Now think about this as we began. We're about a midpoint, 1,000 years from Abraham to Christ. And this Davidic covenant is given. To me, it's pretty, it's pretty kind of makes the little hairs on the back of my neck stand up. This is pretty exciting. If we could just say in general terms, this is the midpoint of God's plan. And he said, covenant with his servant David, I'm going to make you a dynasty. And nothing will dismantle your dynasty. Some of us have been students of history, whether it's the Kennedy dynasty or um, years ago, there was a, a device that was really, uh, it was in Enneagrams now. All, all these things come and go, but there was one that was fairly complicated. Um, I just lost the name of it. Where we did the boxes and the circles. Um, oh, gosh. Psychologist in the room, help me out here. Um, Genogram? Is that what a genogram? It's a rather robust tool to look at family dynamics. And we, we, would, we would do like the, the Kennedy family or uh, Jane Fonda and her Henry Fonda. When you look at these genograms of where people come from, not, not DNA samples, but who these people were, influences they had, what they're born into, whether they're born into wealth or born into power or whatever, and born into a business, born into something that's a known name, um, the Davidic dynasty trumps all this stuff. There, there is no more powerful theological genogram, if you will, than what we're looking at in these few verses. That this is going to be forever and eternal, and this is from where the Christ is going to come. Um, man is interesting. Uh, nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. You and I don't invent new sins. We, we, we get more sophisticated at our sin the older we get, and we get more sly about owning our sin and calling it sin and accepting responsibility for our sin. But we're, we're who we are, and we need help. And there is no provision that's going to forgive us of sin except Jesus Christ. <laughs> Period. End of story. Selah. No intermission. No interlude. No part two. And I think, you know, if you're here today and you've trusted Christ, good for you. Be reminded of the cost of your salvation. If you've never trusted Christ, you were drugged here by a friend, your parents make you come, I get it. But at the end of the day, he lived, he died, he was buried. Three days later, he is resurrected because he's an eternal messianic king that you can't kill. David learned it early in his life. If there was an offering I could do for this, I would give it. I can't bring anything. I fall on your grace and mercy, God. So we put it in simple language. We're trusting in Jesus Christ to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We believe, we trust, we have faith in him to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. I can't be good enough to get to God. God was good enough to come to you and me. And if you haven't put your trust, your heart, your rest in the fact that he loves you, he paid for your sin, you're missing out on life. Not just a Christian life, which by all measures around us, it isn't all that good to look at sometimes. You're missing out on eternal life. A life that you can find freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, 
freedom from the, the horror parts of a bad marriage or bad parenting or being fired or being treated unjustly or going through litigation or having cancer for the fourth time. The runway is short, men and women. Our lives are a vapor, fog on a mirror, smoke from, steam from a kettle. Do you know that you know that you know that you know where you're going to spend all eternity? The Messianic kingdom was established before eternity passed. And you and I are the recipient. We get to read it. We get to study it. How did this all happen? Because he loves you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. <laughs>